Let's sing it out this morning. If you guys aren't clappers today, are you? Go ahead. Give God a round of applause. No? Yes? Okay. All right. We're only clapping for God. And you know what? Feel free to clap while we're singing, too. If you guys feel it and you just want to clap, go ahead. Okay? Preferably with the beat. But, you know, if you can't, it's all right. It's all praise, right? Well, good morning and welcome to Southfield. I'm so glad you're here with us today, worshiping God, um, ready to hear his word. And um, the song, these songs are just going to prime our, our souls to hear what um, God is going to say to us this morning. Um, last week, Dennis began a study on Corinthians that we're going to be in for a few months. And he just gave us the background of the people of Corinth, which... Uh, wasn't very good. They were pretty sinful and they were pretty against God and, and just ignoring him. And, and so we kind of see some parallels of the, of the people of Corinth and just people today and how we've kind of, we've turned our backs on God and we just sort of do the opposite, um, of what he says to do. But in all of that, we can't lose faith. We can't lose hope because God is in control. This is, this is his world that he has created and he is always with us and he still holds it together. Even when everything is falling apart, this is his kingdom.
that line, nothing can overcome the power of your name. Nothing. Amen. We're going to continue in worship this morning. And if you have a mountain in your life today, this is a good song for you because it's a very encouraging song and it reminds us that nothing is too big for God and nothing is impossible for him. A love that's never fading Let mercy fall on me And everyone needs forgiveness The kindness of a Savior The hope of nations
God, we come before you today as people that need you. We are weak, Lord, and we just, we need you, Father. And we know, Lord God, that you um, are strong enough and big enough to move these mountains that are in our lives. Lord, we know that they may look impossible to us, but to you, they're not. And we know that all things are possible with you. And we worship you this morning with our worship and our praise, Lord, and now by our hear, our ears, Lord God. As we listen to your word and apply it to our lives, Father, so that we are changed for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I feel like there should have been one more part of that prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's got a note. It's got the whole work. So I'm sitting during the prayer moving the donut. I've got goo on my fingers. What do I do? I mean, will somebody lick my fingers for me? No. Yeah, we got this workout group going, and it's going well. Everybody that's doing it right now, they, I'm not feeling as bad as I was last week. My arm's moving, whatever. But now we're divided into teams. And, you know, so much for being Christians and loving each other. We've, we've gone to this. If you're on the wrong team, man, watch out. You're getting things like this shoved in your face. Which, by the way, if my child knew me, he'd know that is not appealing to me at all. There were other things in that box that I'd love to eat. But no, I walk in this morning, Eric Richter hands me half a loaf of banana bread. I mean, <laughs> that did it again. Sorry. Ugh. This is the way to do that, I guess. Oh, that's, now I remember what sugar tastes like. I forgot. 
It is great to see you today. Nice, chilly morning to come out and worship God together. And I'm glad you did. As you walked in, you received a catalog of all the journey group offerings that we have going right now. And I hope that you've gone ahead and made your selection and been really thrilled to see. I mean, my goodness, the workout group has like 50 people in it. It's crazy. That one's going really well. A lot of the groups are filling up. This is the week that you need to go ahead and get registered. So you do that online when you get home. But make sure you look at that. The card inside... Uh, We have you always pull that out and at least put your name on it. And again, I want to give you the two reminders from last week. Uh, There are two opportunities for you to get involved in serving that that aren't really, uh, you know, high high level of effort, but a way that you can help others in a way that really pleases God. And one is to just be involved in collecting the offering and and serving communion. So if that's something you're interested in doing, you can check that off in the little box to the right uh, on the on the back side, it just says offering communion. You can check that off. And the other is we have uh, we've purchased a few of the the signs that you see out front. A few more that we'd like to just kind of have strategically wander around the community. If you'd be willing to take one of those for about a month, put it out on Saturday, bring it back in on Sunday. We'll give you the an area that's very close to your house, a corner that's a nice strategic location to place the sign. If you'd be willing to do that uh, for a short stretch, go ahead and put that as well and and we'll contact you about that opportunity toward the end we'll talk again about some of the some of the group opportunities that are available as well well i even though we've already prayed i'd like to go ahead and pray once again as we approach god's word this morning now father as we come here into your presence we love the fact that we get to sing to you and think about you uh to leave behind for a few moments at least uh the hassles and troubles and problems of our world Uh, to be able to come in and and kind of find true north again, figure out how we're supposed to live. We don't always do that right during the week, but we get this chance to make a a course correction. And so, God, I pray that as we hear uh, your word today, we'll understand what you're saying to us and that we will never be content with just listening, but we will be people who always look at how we can live the word, not just hear it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. How many of you, and I really would like to show hands on this, how many of you have ever heard of the Thomas Jefferson Bible? Have you ever heard of that? I'm just curious to know how many of you have. Okay, great. Um, That is not the name given by the original author, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson compiled a book he named The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, I'll, I'll send you this link later. Go back a second, Eric. I'm sorry. I'll send you this link later, but this is um, a website that you can go to and actually see every page involved in this document. Uh, what you're going to see right now is the title page. And uh, as you're looking at this site on the Smithsonian, again, you can, you can look at each page If you notice the rest of the title page, it says, this is extracted textually from the Gospels in Greek, Latin, French, and English. So you have this book that um, Jefferson put together, 82 pages in all. And he started with the Gospel of Luke. In fact, he started at Luke chapter 2. In fact, the next image is of the first page. This is as if the book was laying open in front of you. And I know you can't see the fine details of it, but what you have here is four columns. You can make out the columns. In the first column, he has the Greek Bible. In the second column, he has the Latin Bible. Then if you go across the page, he has it in French. And finally, in the far right column, he has the English version of the Bible. Now, if you were sitting looking at this on your computer screen and you were looking at that fourth column, you'd see that this begins with Luke 2 and he puts the first seven verses of Luke. So you're really familiar with those verses. There went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, all the world should be taxed. Uh, They went, no room in the end, had the baby, his name was Jesus. He then cuts off in verse 7 and jumps down to verse 21 where Jesus is named and where his circumcision takes place. Then he jumps down further. He uh, puts in verses 39 and 40. He skips verse 41 and then verses 42 to 45. So he basically takes 45 verses of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 2, and, and boils them down to 41, 14 verses in all. Jefferson's motive for this cut-and-paste version of the Bible 
is questioned. Some people believe that what he wanted to do is have a a shortened, more condensed version of the Gospels that he would use for the sake of sending out the Gospel to Native Americans. I I find that kind of an interesting theory, given the fact that it's written in uh, Latin and Greek and French and English, four languages very common to the Native Americans. But anyway... I just, whatever, you got to have those moments. Uh, the second motive is far more likely. And, and that is, has to do with Jefferson, Jefferson himself. It has to do with his personality, his massive intellect, his theology, and really his core beliefs and doctrine about God, about Jesus, and about the Bible. Jefferson was a deist. I don't know if you know much about deism. There are two basic components to the theology of deism. The first is the belief that God is knowable solely on the basis of human reason. So a deist uh, does not take into account supernatural things in the Bible. In fact, just flatly doesn't believe they happen. Doesn't believe that the miracles happen. Doesn't believe that the resurrection happened. Doesn't believe any of those pieces. They just believe that God can be known just through the human mind. The other thing that's important to know about deism is that they believe that God created the universe and then he abandoned it. He assumes no control over the world anymore. He's not involved in the affairs of human being. He exerts no influence. Uh, There are no supernatural revelations from God. Nothing. This is the approach that Jefferson takes as a deist. Uh, this view really took hold during the Age of Enlightenment. And it is, there is no question that Thomas Jefferson was one of the princes of the Enlightenment era. He was brilliant. He was skeptical. He was highly scientific. And he had spent his adult life throwing off the shackles of tyranny, whether it was the tyranny of a foreign king or what he viewed to be the tyranny, uh, uh, really the slavery of ideas that he found to be superstitious, ideas that he found to be kind of antiquated and shouldn't be holding people in shackles anymore. So he rejected all of the supernatural parts of the Bible. He wanted nothing to do with those. Miracles, angels, virgin birth, he rejected those. Now, he clearly believes in a divine being. I mean, read the Declaration of Independence. There's no question that he has a belief in a divine being. He just wants to see that divine being the way he sees him. He, like many intellectuals at his time, was trying to square his religion with his human reason. He was trying to take those two pieces of the puzzle and mash them together and make them fit. And so his way of doing that, the way to make it work, was to put together a a cut-and-paste Bible, cut-and-paste Gospels, that used the teachings and the examples of Jesus. He definitely recognized him as one of the great moral leaders of history, But he couldn't buy into the idea that Jesus turned water into wine or raised people from the dead or even was raised from the dead himself. Why don't you go to the end of that Bible? You'll be able to see this page. This is where it ends. It ends with a passage from Matthew. Look at right down there at the bottom. He slices a line from verse 42 of chapter 27 of Matthew. It says, There laid they Jesus. And then he skips down to verse 60 and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. That's it. No third day. No earthquake at the tomb. No angels. No Mary in the garden. No risen Savior. He composed his own gospel. And ironically... He eliminated the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the gospel which he had written. Jefferson was brilliant. He's a man of monumental genius. You can't deny it. And yet his superior intellect could not wrap his arms around a risen Savior. It was impossible for him to do. What I want you to do is uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to show you one of the foundational verses of this book. It's really, really important. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 3, Paul writes, I passed on to you 
what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. Then he was seen by Peter and then the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. I mean, folks, this is the gospel. This is the undeniable gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and raised from the dead on the third day. Just as the scripture said, this is the absolute bedrock of our faith, the death, burial, and undeniable resurrection of Jesus Christ. You cannot, as Jefferson did, embrace two out of three of these events and call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. You may be an admirer. But you're not a follower of Jesus Christ if you've not embraced the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And don't miss what Paul does here. I love it. Twice he says, just as Scripture said. Why does he say that? Why does he do that? Because he is trying to establish for us this foundational truth of Christianity. The Bible is the sole authority for faith and practice in the life of a believer and the life of the church. If the Bible says it, we believe it. And so if it does not square with our human reasoning, if you're struggling with something, say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. The problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with our finite, flawed human reasoning. And unfortunately, we live in a time, and let's forget about the world. Let's stick here. We live in a time that even believers go, that doesn't make sense to me. And so we would rather take an X-Acto knife and cut and paste a Bible together that fits with our reasoning rather than look at what the Bible says and say, this is what God says, and I need to bring my thinking in alignment with what the Bible says as opposed to trying to bring the Bible in alignment with my opinion. That's what Paul is very clearly laying out when he says, just as the Scripture said. So last week we embarked on this season-long study of the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. And I'm not going to go into a great deal of review every week. If we do, we'll, we'll never get through this book. So what I'd encourage you to do if you missed last week, catch up by going to our website and go to the podcast player and you can listen to uh, past, uh, past teaching. In fact, you can listen to the whole service. Pretty cool. You get all the music. You get the girls singing. You, get, you can hear the band. You can hear Jason drumming away. It's great. You can catch the announcements, all the pieces of, of, the, of the service, including if you cough. In fact, everybody, go ahead and cough right now. <laughs> all right. Now, go back and listen. You can hear yourself on the podcast, which is very exciting. If you go to that player, one of the things I did want to show you is um, right there, it just, a circle just appeared. You can actually download uh, the bulletin every week as well. So you can download the documents from the week, and you can go ahead and listen to the sermon. Okay, back from the commercial. Here we are. Um, we set the background for the book last week. And we looked at the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 1, and we also looked at Acts chapter 18. And both of those basically let us know how Paul brought the gospel to the, to the city of Corinth, and then over 18 months began to establish a fledgling church in an intensely immoral culture. Uh, we saw that if there was one word that you could use to describe the Corinthians, it's confused. And by the Corinthians, I want to say their culture, the, the world in which they lived, as well as the church. Confusion was just part of the game for them. And you're going to hear that word a lot as we go along in this book. Because Paul is constantly trying to take an area that they are confused and bring them back to the right path. I mean, the meanings and definitions of everything from love to marriage and morality were redefined and distorted. And Paul was on a mission to help these people develop a biblical worldview rather than the pagan view that the people had at that time. Chapter 1 introduces two important themes. One is foundational and the other is relational. And we're going to start with the foundational uh, theme today. We're, we're going to zero in on, uh, on a very important biblical truth. 
Paul says this in verse 18 of chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. Just let that sink in. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it as the very power of God. Paul says there are two kinds of people in the world. People in the process of perishing and people in the process of being saved. Only two kinds of people in the world. People who are headed to for destruction and people who are in the process of being saved. And he says, for the group that's being saved, the cross of Jesus Christ is powerful. And for those who are perishing, it is absolutely nothing but foolishness. Now, Paul's saying to the church, you guys get it. You understand the power of the cross, and it's making a difference in your life. You believe that Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ rose again. For the recipients of this letter, the cross was already working. It's transforming power. But while they got it, the culture in which they lived and worked and witnessed didn't get it at all. The culture in which they lived saw the message of the cross as foolishness. So from verse 18... Through the rest of this chapter and into chapter 2, Paul outlines the challenge that the Corinthians faced in sharing the gospel with the people of their time. It's a challenge that is not unique to them. The challenges they faced are the same challenges we face today. Look at that verse again. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. Do you know anybody who you've shared the message of the cross with them and they said, that's nuts. That's just, really? You believe that stuff? And hopefully for you who are being saved, you've recognized the power of the message of the cross in your own life. Last week I stated that Paul, when he came to Corinth, and the Corinthians themselves faced a mountain. It was a formidable and inescapable mountain. You couldn't get around it. When one looked from the sea toward the, the city of Corinth and off into the distance beyond the city, you saw this rising 1,800-foot mountain, the Acropolis of Corinth, or the Acrocorinth, it was also called. And on the top of that mountain, the people of that city, the Greeks, worshipped Greek gods and Greek goddesses of their own design. And at the pinnacle of that mountain stood a temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. She was the goddess of love, and they worshipped her through prostitution and orgies. That was the way you worshipped that goddess. This mountain formed the foundation of their religious teaching and practice. Paul and this newly formed church are bringing a message to very foreign, immoral ears. Here's what they're going to say to these people who believe you worship your God through prostitution and orgies. He's going to say, there is one true God, not many. Salvation is through a man who was killed and came back to life. He's going to share with them a message of love, not lust, and of sacrifice, not self-indulgence. And this message to Greek ears sounded intensely foolish. They just thought it was really dumb. And don't forget, the Corinthian church isn't just trying to reach Greeks. They're also trying to reach Hebrews. They're also trying to reach Jews who had been deported from other countries and found a new home exiled in Corinth. And there they built their own synagogues to worship the one true God, Jehovah. Paul says to the church, you face a huge challenge. You face a monumental challenge. He says, it, that being the cross, is foolish to the Jews who are looking for a sign from heaven. And it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say, it's all nonsense. It's just crazy. It is in moments like these that I wish we all read Greek. Because there are a couple of words here that when you read them, they just jump out of the page at you. They really add a lot of meaning to this. He says, when we preach Christ crucified, 
and you look at the Bible on the screen, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles, or in other words, the non-Jews, the Greeks, say it's complete nonsense. The words translated, and we have underlined there for you, the words translated offended and nonsense are great Greek words. And, and we're just going to go through, through these. He says, to the Jews, I want you to hear the word and hear what's going on in here. He says, to the Jews, the message of Christ is scandalon. What word do you hear there? Scandalon. It's scandalous. This is scandalous teaching. Are you kidding me? How can you teach something like this? It's scandalous. And then he says, to the Greeks, it is morion or moria. What do you hear there? It's moronic. He's saying, you are scandalous and you're morons. How how dare you teach something like this? This is what they have to approach. Who am I talking to today? Am I talking to someone who thinks what I'm saying is moronic or someone who thinks what I'm saying is scandalous? But either way, this is what they were facing all the time. The Jews saw it as scandalous. That, That word could be translated, it was a stumbling block. This was the obstacle in the road that they could not get around without tripping. I mean, every time they, they would hear that we believe that the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. And they're going, no way. That is not the way it works. No way. And this is the stumbling block for them. They can't get beyond that fact that we believe the Messiah has come. To the Greeks, it's moronic. It's foolish. It's just plain stupid. They want wisdom. They want something profound They want the legendary story of a a Greek god. And instead, we tell them what? There was this baby born in a manger, and he grew up, and he was a carpenter. and And at some point, he was captured and tortured and killed by Roman soldiers. Their Greek gods weren't born in barns. Their Greek gods weren't weren't commoners. Their Greek gods didn't get crucified. They did the crucifying. They were powerful. They were majestic. They were massive and mighty. And to these people, the story sounded just plain nuts. So Paul and the church face a huge mountain of resistance as they present the simple foundational truths of the gospel. The Jews say scandalous, and the Greeks say stupid, just stupid. Now, I'm going to suggest something kind of obvious. Not very different today, is it? It's really not very different today. You present Jesus to somebody, and you're just shocked that they don't want it. I mean, what's going on? It just makes, it's, it's a lovely story. Doesn't it all, it all comes together, it just makes perfect, what, you don't believe this? You, you, no, you know what the reactions we get? They may not use the first word. They may not use the word scandalous, but they sure use the word stupid. They have no problem with those ideas. Uh, Think about this for a moment. Have you ever had the chance to lay out the gospel and lay out one very foundational truth? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Have you ever sat with someone and told them they're a sinner? And I'm not talking about some screaming, ranting, holding aside. You're a sinner. I'm just saying, you're having a sincere conversation, and you say, well, the Bible says you've sinned. Have you ever done that? Have you ever pointed out aspects of their life, maybe lack of honesty, moral flaws, sexual missteps? Have you ever shown a person what the Bible says about their sin? Their reaction is not dissimilar to the Jewish reaction. They find such a suggestion scandalous. They just find it scandalous. It's a reality that causes them to stumble. They come up to the gospel and they can't get over this rock in the middle of the road. It causes them to trip. They say things like, how dare you judge me? How dare you judge me? Who are you to say that? How dare you point your finger at me? How dare you talk to me? I know who you are, and you're no better than me. You get comments like that. To modern ears, it's scandalous to suggest that the way a person is living is wrong, let alone the fact that their sin has an impact on their eternal destiny. So there's this piece of this that's just scandalous. But further, the message, of the, Christ, uh, the message of Christ crucified to sinners and sinners like me is also a simple message. 
And that simplicity causes some people to have problems as well. Because they want a message that's more sophisticated, more high-minded, more scientific. They, they want to embrace something that, that's, you know, just, it just seems like it has more meat to it than something as simple as a baby was born in a gar- barn, raised, died, rose again, and here he wants to be your savior And so when you start to suggest the way to salvation to someone, they find Christ crucified moronic. It's just moronic. It's a dumb message. And you know how this one works. You start to share your faith and skeptical comments start coming back at you. And depending on the nature of the person, sometimes they're drippingly skeptical. Things like, okay, so you're telling me you believe a book that's over 2,000 years ago old, written by a bunch of non-scientific superstitious people. You believe that. Oh, that's cool. You believe um, that whole idea that, uh, you know, the, the earth was created? You're, you're into that? So a little boat floating on the water, all the people are destroyed? That's you, huh? You're, you're into that. And you're into the morality of the Bible? I mean, really? You, you honestly think that this is the way people should live? And you get this skepticism thrown at you. You know if you share this, you know you've been there. In no time at all, what seemed to you to be a sensible, systematic declaration of faith is belittled as simplistic, old-fashioned, superstitious, and antiquated. And even you are kind of going, huh, oh, uh, This person thinks that the message is moronic, it's foolish, it's stupid, it's simple. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, our modern temptation is to downplay the parts of the message that people find judgmental and to modernize and intellectualize the pieces of the message that people find naive and antiquated. We want to kind of do a little Jefferson. Let's go ahead and cut and paste the gospel that we think people will find attractive, more winsome, more appealing. And as we do that, we're missing the point of 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29. Paul says, instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those that are powerful. God chose things that are despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considered important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. And not the first time we've heard that boasting thing, is it? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, not by works, so no one can brag about it. He says, hey, folks, this is God's plan. This is the way God's plan works. Two things are required to come to God, humility and faith. If you're going to come into a relationship with God, you've got to have humility and you've got to have faith. Look at James 4, verse 6. He says there, God gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires. As the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he favors, he gives grace to the humble. God is looking for us to approach him with humility. Do you see this? We can't come to God with our pride intact. You can't come to God with your pride intact. There's got to come a point of humility that you recognize what God says about us. We have to come to God on his terms, not our own. So before we can come to God, we have to come to terms with our sin. We have to come to terms with our human condition. So For those of us that are sharing the gospel, if we try to soft sell what God calls sin, what we are doing is guaranteeing that that person will stay locked into their pride. They're going to stay locked into their pride. We're guaranteeing that they will try to approach God with their pride intact instead of coming to God realizing the truth of the condition which God says remains in their heart. Two things are required to come to God. Humility and faith. How about the faith side? Look at Hebrews eleven six. 
It is impossible to please God without faith. That's about as definitive a statement as you can find in the Bible, right? It is impossible to come to God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Faith. Why do we need faith? We need faith because we have doubts. Does anybody not have doubts? If you don't, you're, you're in a coma. All of us have some doubts. To all of us, something doesn't make sense in the Bible. I promise you, yesterday we're, we're standing after boot camp talking, and we started talking about the Trinity, which has some of you thinking, I'm never talking to Dennis afterward. Trinity? Are you kidding me, really? But anyway, we're talking about the Trinity. We're talking about the way the Trinity works. And, and I just said to the group, what I will say publicly right now, I don't get it on the Trinity. I just don't get it. How in the world can you have three distinct people, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and one God? I mean, my brain, you know, you can give me the egg illustration. You can do all these things. I go, that's all neat. But bottom line, I don't get it. So what's the next step? I have one of two choices. The Bible is wrong or Dennis's mind and reasoning are finite and flawed. And I, as a person who's a follower of Christ said, I will put my mind under the authority of this and say, this is right, whether it makes sense to me or not. Now, some of you are going, that's foolish. I promise you there are things in your life that you have accepted by faith that you are fine and good with. You're just afraid of this. Because if you put yourself under the authority of this, then you've actually got to do what God says. And for some, that's a scary way to have to live. There are a lot of things I don't get. I could go on and on. But here's the thing. That's important. I believe the Bible And there are a lot of people here who believe the Bible is the sole authority for faith and practice in their life. So anything I don't understand is not a problem with the Bible. It's a problem with me. And that's what needs to adjust. That's faith. I need faith to bridge the gap of my doubts and my limited reasoning. I need faith for that. So go back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go down to verse 24 where it says, but to, those God called by, but to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's saying, folks, if you're here today and you're a believer, Christ for you is the power of God and he is the wisdom of God. This foolish plan, I love the way Paul says that. This, he's, he's naming it what it is. It's a dumb plan. It's a stupid plan. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. I, I, here's the bottom line. I think we all agree this. Everybody needs God. We all need God. And for some people, they can't give up their pride. They just can't get around the fact that God says, you're sinful. And until you're willing to deal with that sin, we're going to have a problem. For others, they need to understand everything first. And until they understand it, they're not going to buy it. They're being told the gospel is simple. And to them, it's stupid, it's moronic, and it's foolish. The fact is, nothing has really changed in 2,000 years. Nothing has all has changed. The problem that Paul addresses in this passage happens in almost every society. And it doesn't have anything to do with the culture. It has to do with the human heart. It has to do with the human condition. And we will face it in every culture. So don't blame TV. This is the way humans work. We don't like being told we're wrong. And we don't like being told we don't know everything. Anybody for You're all wrong and you don't know a thing. Uh, you, know, you don't like hearing that. We don't like to hear that. But God says we're wrong. And we don't completely understand. We can't save anyone. So when it comes to presenting the gospel, this is where we struggle because we want to do a Thomas Jefferson. We want to cut and paste a gospel that will be winsome and attractive and bring people over. So we downplay the scandalous side of sin. We try to fluff up the simple side of the gospel. And what we're selling to people is not the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. Christ died. Christ buried. Christ is risen again. When it all comes down to it, it's not about our smooth presentation. It is about the power of the cross. 
that changes a heart and changes a life. Yet, truly, in our own absolutely positive desperation to bring someone to Christ, we do a Thomas Jefferson. We cut and paste the gospel that we think will work. But again, looking at verse 25, it is the foolish plan of God that saves people. Are you willing to embrace the foolish plan? You see, I think the problem for some of us is we're afraid of how someone's going to look at us. If we share with them that they're a sinner, we're afraid that they'll think we're judging them. If we share with them a simple message, we'll think that they'll think that... uh, Yeah, we're stupid. You get the point. You get the point. You get the point. We have to share the truth about their condition. They're sinful. We have to share the truth about the solution. It's the cross of Christ. And once we freely share the truth, our job is done. You got to stop. Our job is done. If you've delivered the truth, your job is done. It's up to the Spirit now to take that truth and use it. But if you've not shared the truth, the Spirit doesn't have anything to work with. So we need to stop being fearful about sharing the scandalous, foolish message of the gospel. We need to just lay it out there. And you know what? They're going to think what they think. They already think you're kind of ugly and weird anyway. They're going to think what they're going to think. We've got to give God the tool of the gospel. We've got got, got to give the person the tool of the gospel so that God's spirit can do the work he wants to do. 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But for those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. I think it's time for all of us to trust the power of God. To stop trying to figure out how we're going to make it work and to trust the power of God. Like the culture of Corinth, people today are confused. And we're giving a a foolish message to confused people. And we have a God who will make sense of that message and through his spirit bring people safely home to himself. Will you trust God enough to bring people to himself the way he decided he wanted to do it? Are you willing to trust God enough to resist the temptation to cut and paste a more attractive gospel? So before we head to communion, I want to look at our verse, and we're going to say it together because it really applies today to what we're talking about. Let's say it out loud. Be on guard. Stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, and do everything with love. I'm telling you what, that verse has everything to do with how we share the foolish message of the gospel with human beings. Let's talk to God right now. Father, I pray that we would embrace the cross, that we'd stop trying to come up with the way that will make sense, the way that'll work, the way that won't be offensive. How do you not find someone feeling offended when they're told you've fallen short of God's standard of perfection? Of course we feel offended. God, I pray today that we would embrace the message of the cross instead of trying to invent our own because the message of the cross brings people to God and the message we're inventing leaves them dead in their sin. And it's not doing any good anyway. As we take communion, God, this morning, I pray that we would find ourselves embracing the message of the cross in a fresh way. In Jesus' name, amen. Disaster comes, oh my soul, oh my soul. When waters rise and hope takes flight, oh my soul, oh my soul, oh my soul. Ever faithful, ever true. You are no, you never let go.
We struggle sometimes, God, thinking that the world uh, does not embrace the message of the cross, and because of that, we find ourselves frustrated. But if we were to look deep inside ourselves, God, I'm afraid that sometimes we would, we would discover that we don't believe in the message of the cross. We don't believe in the power of the cross. And until we as a church believe in the power of the cross, we can't be looking at the world. And so I pray this week we would come back to those simple words, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ is rose again, risen again. Just like the scriptures say. And we would find ourselves in the simplicity of a child, the humility of a child saying, God, I believe. I believe every word you said. I'm tired of fighting you. I'm tired of fighting the way I want to mix up the message so that it sounds more winsome and appealing, so that it doesn't feel offensive, so that my friends will will like you, God, and will like me. Let us come to this day that we embrace the reality of your word instead of the distortions we've been embracing. We can look at Thomas Jefferson today and shake our heads no. How dare he cut the resurrection out of the Bible? But God, for a lot of us, we're cutting the resurrection out of our lives. And I pray today that we would once again embrace that supernatural act that you didn't just die and you weren't just buried but that you rose again and you live right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Our ushers are going to come and receive the offering, so baskets are being passed. You can place your offering in there, and also the card that you filled out at the beginning of the service. And while we... um, 
have a couple moments on a couple of things I want to share with you. One, one has to do with what we do uh, as a church family. When, when one person is family, hurting in our family, when others are hurting, uh, we want to make sure that we move in as the family of Christ, the body of Christ, and help in every way that we can. I sent you an email this past, uh, this past week about the fact that a man, a man who many of you didn't know, Joe Maestro, died. Uh, the people you do know are the ones close to him. You know his sister, Pam. And you know his son, John. John's 11. A few years back, uh, John's mom died. And on Monday, John's dad died. And one of the areas that I just, I love the way God works, is that years ago, uh, God tugged at Pam's heart to move in with her brother and her brother's son to help raise John. And so today, even though his physical parents aren't here, uh, he's got a parent. He's got two great parents. He's got a pair of aunts that love him desperately and can serve as his mom. But the Bible is clear on this. When it comes to people who are widowed and people who are orphans, the church has a responsibility. It's, it's our time to step in and make sure that John and his family know the comfort of Christ and they know the comfort of Christ through us. One of the ways that we can do that is just by showing up tomorrow. Tomorrow will be the, the viewing of the visitation for, for Joe at, at 1 o'clock and then, a, and then a service at 2. It's a Martin Luther King Day, so kids are off school. And I'd encourage you, if you're, you know, imagine your 11-year-old kid without their mom and dad. John needs our support. John needs to know we love him. And uh, imagine finding yourself the aunt of 11-year-old who's now got to be the mom. Family needs our support. I know you'll come through. Now, you may not be able to be there tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow's just one day. We need to be there for the rest of this kid's life. We need to be there to help him and support him. So uh, I hope that you will do everything you can in order to show Pam and show John and show Deb uh, their, your support during this time. Now I feel like I'm just taking that, that, you know, I learned how to drive standard and, and I, I do that. So I'm going to grind the gear here just a touch and tell you, don't forget as you go home today to take a moment to look at the, the groups that are offered. Some great opportunities for groups, Okay. And some of them start today. Like I said, some of them start down the road. But one of them that starts this week, this Thursday, is a group for students. Talking about money. Three weeks. It's a Dave Ramsey abbreviated course on money. Uh, three sessions being held at our house. It's only an hour. And, and, I, and I'm passionate about this one for a reason. Uh, I was talking to a, a kid not too long ago, a girl who's in college. And, and she has a friend who just went home from college after two years. Uh, the girl has almost $60,000 worth of debt, and she has two years worth of college and nothing basically to show for it. And what she's going to do now is probably go get a job at a great Starbucks and learn how to put little cream on top of a coffee drink. And she's already got this massive hole of debt. And I'm just, I'm feeling passionate about this because I'm seeing this more and more and more that our kids are digging an insurmountable hole even before life has begun in the eyes of most of us as adults. And so I want to encourage you to get your kid there. And, you know, the fact is society has been giving them a water drip for, you know, 13, 15, 18 years. They've been told, just borrow, just borrow, just borrow, just borrow. It's no big deal. It's going to take a while to reverse that. Three weeks, three hours isn't going to, you know, radically change everything. But it may give them a couple of concepts that they can carry and start realizing there is actually another way, a better way than just digging the hole. These days, I find myself on some topics just finding myself so desperate to say, okay, I don't know where to start, but let's start here. Put down the shovel. Just put down the shovel. Stop digging the hole. So I encourage you to get your kids involved in that. Now, here's the cool thing. You're the parent and you can make them do whatever you want. <laughs> you still have that inestimable power. You can say you're going to this thing, puppy, and you can even drive them there and drop them off. And for three hours, they'll be at my house and I'll give them donuts. You know, we'll have a great time, but, um, We've got to help reverse the tide on this thing. We've got to help the reverse the tide. We've got to get some kids some freedom uh, from the debt that causes them to make really foolish decisions. So I hope you'll consider getting your kid to that this week. We're going to pray. And, and as we do, I'd like you to just stay sitting right where you are. God, uh, what we do here every Sunday, it's about more than a presentation 
a presentation of music, a presentation of teaching. It's about being a family. A family that comes alongside people who we love when they hurt. A family who helps our kids to know the right way to walk and that there's a way to walk that's just going to mess up their lives. And God, we want to be a family to each other. We don't want to just be people who sit by side by side and walk away. We want to be there for each other. Lord, I would have to admit to you once again, after yet another week of watching somebody slip from this life, I look forward to the day when this death thing is over. I look forward to the day that we don't go to another funeral. I look forward to the day that we don't hear of another little girl contracting cancer. I look forward to the day that all this junk is over. And here's what I know. From my human reasoning, it doesn't look like it's ever going to end. It just looks miserable. But when I read your word, it says there will come a day that death will be thrown in hell and Satan will be thrown in hell and tears will be thrown in hell and all the bad stuff will be gone. And right now today... I don't see it, but I trust. I trust. I trust you, and I pray that you will help all of us to trust you today. As we walk with our friends through hard times, I pray that you will help us to trust the foolish message of the gospel, that it and it alone has the power to change people's lives. We pray this today in the name of Jesus. We know you love us. We know you're risen. We know you're alive. We know you hear this prayer. Amen.